debating if I would make it into a third one, but we've covered most of the material that I wanted to uh, touch on. Esther chapter 7. Hear the word of God. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. When the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Amen. Father God, we submit our hearts to your word, and we pray that you would instruct us and guide us and empower us to live it out. Father, what a blessing it is to understand your providence, and I pray that you would anoint my lips to clearly and faithfully preach your word and for each one of us to hear it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Puritan writer John Flavel uh, gave the quote I've put into your outlines. Some providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. If you read Hebrew from left to right like we read English, it wouldn't make any sense whatsoever because Hebrew has got to be read backwards from our perspective, from right to left. And what he was saying is there are some things that just do not make sense about God's providence while God's providence is working out. Now, in hindsight, we can see that the perfections, absolute perfections of God's providence in the book of Esther, but Esther at the time was not able to see it. She had no idea about the things that were already set up 24 hours before in chapter 6, and uh, so she does not immediately have the knowledge of it, though she knows, no doubt, that God is in providential control. And so by the time we've read chapter 6, we know all is probably safe for Esther and Haman's in deep trouble. Uh, we know that, but the king doesn't know it. Esther doesn't know it. Um, I think Haman, to some degree, is starting to probably figure this out. And I think it's worthwhile to begin by standing in the shoes of each one of these uh, characters. Verse 1 says, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. The king is not at all preoccupied with Haman's troubles. In fact, I don't think that he even knows that Haman is in trouble. 
uh, at this point, uh, the king is probably totally oblivious to the fact that God has been using him as a pawn all throughout the story. But the question we need to ask is, does his ignorance at all frustrate the providence of God? And of course, the answer is no. Didn't wasn't dependent on it in the first place. Okay, Haman. Haman probably has a deep foreboding that he is in trouble. Maybe he even thinks that the gods are against him. What's going on here? Uh, his counselors and his wife have already said, boy, you're doomed to fall if this is what's happened already in uh, chapter 6. So he's got some foreboding and maybe he even is uh, concerned and worried that he needs to flee because uh, of the danger that's there. But does his foreboding, his anticipation that there may be danger, does that in any way frustrate God's providence? And we've already seen that's not the case. Chapter 6, verse 14 uh, even if he was tempted to flee, he doesn't have an opportunity. It says, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Okay, let's look at Esther. Queen Esther is probably a little bit anxious herself. Uh, it is anxiety about not knowing what the next step might bring or maybe anxiety that she might somehow blow it when she talks to the king. And I don't think that butterflies in your stomach is at all inconsistent with a trust in God's providence. And I don't think that it's uh, having butterflies in your stomach is a, a definition of fear. Uh, uh, well, maybe it's a definition of fear, but not of cowardice, for sure. I think there's a big def difference between fear and cowardice. Uh, a soldier who's running across a field because there's something that he's wanting to achieve and the victory of his army, and there's machine gun fire going all around him. He probably has plenty of fear, and if he doesn't, he's clueless, you know, of what's going on. Fear is something that's good because it protects you from making, making bad moves. But there are times where we have to face incredible danger, and there's going to be the impulse of fear, and yet there's bravery in going forward. And I think she was very brave uh, in what she is doing. Uh, there is there is risk involved, but if she was a coward, she would have backed out completely. Now, there's three different, completely different approaches to life, and none of these people's attitudes toward the providence that's going around them affects God's providence at all. It doesn't matter whether they're confident in it, whether they are uh, distressed over it or totally oblivious to it. It does not affect God's providence at all. It simply affects our joy or our lack of joy, our angst or our lack of angst. I remember a, a pastor, but I don't remember the real details of the story, so don't hold me to every detail. But the pastor told me a story about a, a, a young teenager who was going across a, a railroad trestle bridge and it was uh, late at night, it was in the dark, and there was a train coming behind him, and he started scooting faster, but it was so dark, he, he was wanting to watch where he was stepping, so he couldn't go very fast, and he finally figured he wasn't going to be able to get across, so he just climbs over, and he hangs onto one of those, what are those cross beams called? Uh, hangs onto it, and he's a pretty athletic type, he figured, I'll just get back up on it when the train has passed over overhead. And his strategy was fairly sound, except this was an extremely long train, and uh, he was uh, being jostled by the train to such a degree that it was taking more of his strength. By the time the train passed, he was so worn out, he was trying to jump back up onto the bridge and he wasn't able to make a, a grip. And he was, after a while, just beginning to lose grip with his hands. His hands were just aching. And, and finally, he had no strength left and he thought, 
as his fingers slipped that he was going to fall to his death, but he fell two feet to the solid earth. And he hadn't realized he was that far over, or at least the ground was that high where the bridge was at. Now, the question that I have was, did the situation change at all from the time that he was totally confident in his abilities toward he, till the time he had sheer terror? Hadn't changed at all. The ground was still as firm. It was still two feet underneath him, but he did not have the comfort of that. If he had known it was two feet down there, he wouldn't have hung on. He would have just let go. And he would have been totally confident in, uh, in uh, his being able to escape from this train. And in the same way, the reality of providence doesn't change because people doubt it. What changes is us. Okay? We are benefited when we understand providence. Uh, the doctrine of providence, I think, is an incredibly practical doctrine. In fact, predestination and providence were the two doctrines that were the most stabilizing influences in my life. When I came to understand those, it took away a great deal of the fear in my life. It took away a great deal of uh, the unwillingness to venture out and to take risks. It was incredible doctrine uh, for me. Now, there are many people that are oblivious to providence and... Some people who doubt providence, uh, that it's really coming through on their behalf, it's there, it's working for them, but they're not comforted by it. And though God comes through for one just as much as he does for the other, it's obvious that the person who is most benefited is the person who understands and banks on God's providence. And so the bottom line is I would really encourage you guys to study the doctrine of providence. It is very, very practical. It's something that I think can give you boldness in the face of danger. It can give you uh, uh, comfort in the face of loss of a loved one. God's providence. I don't know how people get through some of the tragedies that they face when they do not understand Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. Now, a second lesson, and this is for those of you who like to rush God's providence, is given in the second phrase in verse 2. First phrase in, in verse 2. It says, and on the second day... On the second day, just imagine the outcome of chapter 7 if the events of chapter 6 had not transpired in the last 24 hours. If the kings, if it had not been for the king's insomnia, then the king would never have found out about Mordecai being a hero who had saved the king's life, him being indebted to Mordecai. If it had not been for Haman's insomnia, his sleepless night, because he was so anxious to get Mordecai dead, he probably wouldn't have showed up at the palace at just the right time. In fact, God has been very busy in the last 24 hours because most of the reversals that you see in this chapter are reversals God had already set up. He gets the king's curiosity going, and, and uh, God... Uh, has Haman uh, establishing this great big tall gallows so that he can uh, try to hang Mordecai. And we might think, what if Esther had told the king about this thing one day earlier? And maybe she was even kicking herself that she had lost nerves. Oh, man, now I've got to wait another whole day with anxiety in my heart. Why didn't I tell him when I had the opportunity to tell him? Now, we're not told if she lost nerve. Many commentators assume it. But we do know that there are no what-ifs in God's plan, right? And I think there's a lot of times where we uh, are second-guessing the times that we've blown it in the past and we're groaning to ourselves, if only I had done such and such or if only I hadn't failed to do such and such. And we're always second-guessing what has happened 
through our foul-ups. I want you to realize God's perfect timing can even work through our unwanted foul-ups of the past. Um, we're going to spend some time on the lessons of prudence. That's the second half of the, well, it's actually way later into the sermon. The prudence that we need to exercise, we do need to learn from our mistakes, and we need to change our attitudes and our behaviors. But once God's providence is passed, it's God's decretive will, right? And we should not be always so bent out of shape inside, mourning and bewailing the past. Yes, confess it, deal with it, and get on with life. But whether you're looking to the past or whether you're looking to the future, we need to realize God's providence is perfect. Point C, think about the king's promise. I think this helps to protect uh, Esther by giving the king a dilemma because he's a king who likes to save face, but this promise is going to make it difficult for him to save face on the other thing. It's going to be like his pride working against his pride. Let me explain that after I read verse 2. On the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. I've wondered how many times this king gave rash promises like that because it really is rash. We ought not to be making blanket promises like that. But God put him in such a state of mind where he builds the confidence of Esther and what he does is he takes away the king's ability to back out. He diminishes it. To fail to do something would be a blow to his pride. Now, why would this be important? Well, we've already seen to do something would have been a blow to his pride earlier, right? Because he's going to have to reverse a decree that the whole, the whole empire knows. He's going to have to say he made a mistake. And so what God is doing here is he is using King Ahasuerus' pride to counteract his pride. You know, just like at the Tower of Babel, God used humanists to fight against humanists. Well, God uses even the sins of an individual to counteract the sins of that same individual so that he'll be more open to God's purposes. And again, it just amazes me at how God's providence, without causing people to sin, without tempting people to sin, is still in control because he understands people through and through. It's a marvelous thing to behold. Now, another thing that God mollifies this king with is the submissive, quiet, meek spirit of Esther, and yet an Esther who is also bold, who is capable, who is intelligent. She is such a contrast here, I think, to Vashti. And I'm going to comment on her prudence in verses 3 through 5 a little bit later on. But if the king regretted losing Vashti earlier, which we saw is a, a great probability, he's going to definitely not want to lose this queen. God has prepared Esther in such a way that the king does not want to lose her. And I'm just going to read now and then comment uh, later. Verses 3 through 5, Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? No demanding or petulance or manipulative tears here. This is not a woman whom the king would want to lose. In fact, we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 17, the, the king loves her more than all of the other women. And we saw... 
that if this is King Darius, it certainly matches history because his second queen was the queen that he loved incredibly, was deeply fond of and built a golden statue to her and gave her all kinds of liberties and, and, uh, and honors. But here's a woman who has saved his life, who's communicated that message of uh, Mordecai earlier, and to lose such a queen was unthinkable. And so what God is doing is he is setting up, point by point, he is setting up a situation where the king is going to be motivated to try to do something on behalf of Esther. Now, I left out another point, actually, from your outlines. Uh, verse 5 shows the marvelous way in which God has kept the king ignorant of the decree. And I'll be commenting on that a little bit later, so we won't deal with that now. But look at verse 6. Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, if this had been one day earlier, Haman may not have been quite so terrified because he may have been able to manipulate the situation and to paint the Jews as people who have, you know, committed crimes against the government, who were dangerous people, and irrespective of her position, she was in, under this decree, and he was doing it in the king's benefit. He didn't understand him. He could have talked his way out of it, perhaps, but... It's too late now. There's too much water that's gone under the bridge because this very morning, the king has honored Mordecai the Jew in the highest possible way as being a friend of the king, as being a, the person who has saved the king's life. So it's not going to be very easy for him to say, no, the en they're, they're really enemies of the king. So he set it up uh, very well there. Then... That does not mean that Haman doesn't try to dig himself out. Point F, he's a resourceful person and the king's immediate absence is going to have him try to uh, petition for his life. Knowing the king's pride, knowing it's going to be impossible for the king to reverse that decree, and it's going to be hard for the king even to admit that he has done something wrong, what Haman does is something very rational. Uh, he, the king has promised Esther up to half of his kingdom, and it would be hard for the king even to go back on that. So if he can petition Esther and convince Esther that uh, he, she should spare his life, it may be okay for him. Let's take a look at verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. King's in a quandary. He doesn't know what in the world to do here. And here's how Fox's commentary puts the questions in his mind. Can he punish Haman for a plot he himself approved? If he does so, won't he have to admit his own role in the fiasco and lose face? Moreover, he has issued an irrevocable law. How can he rescind it? So you can see why the king is very, very frustrated. But God knows that this resourceful Haman is uh, going to use the king's absence to plea bargain and it would be something he would otherwise have no opportunity to be able to do. It was with the king's absence, he's going to quickly take advantage of this situation and it's going to get him into deeper trouble. Now, whether it's an angel who trips in, whether he falls on his own, you know, we're not really told. But if you know Persian protocol, you know Haman could not have deliberately fallen on Esther's couch. In fact, he wasn't even technically supposed to stay in the same room. He should have followed the king, but he's got three options. Um... If he follows the king, the king's, you know, really angry with him. He doesn't know what the king's thinking. If he goes out there, there may be trouble. If he flees, he's going to be admitting guilt and people are going to come after him. And so it's a very rational decision for him to be saying, 
Okay, the king's promised her up to half her king, his kingdom. She's maybe a weak link. Maybe I can sweet talk her into a plea bargain with her in some way. If she will stand on my behalf, I've got some chance of surviving through this thing. And so that's very rational. Falling on the couch, that's not rational at all. In fact, Persian protocol said that everyone had to stay at least seven steps away from any woman of the king's harem. Okay, so this is not uh, uh, rational. It's uh, not uh, thinkable. And yet the unthinkable happens. Look at verse 8. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And we'll just stop there. Talk about bad timing on Haman's part. Right when the king's coming through those doors, he falls across. I, I like to think of angels having some fun. Hey, Gabriel, watch what's going to happen now, you know, as he trips uh, Haman. And that's not totally unrealistic interpretation. Uh, an ancient Jewish Targum uh, uh, says that Gabriel shoved him so that he sprawled all over the couch and all over Esther, of course. So it's not entirely an unrealistic thing. But whether it was an angel, whether God has him trip on his own, God is orchestrating again the timing perfectly. And the king sees Haman in this inappropriate position, and it helps him out of his quandary. Because the king, he doesn't know what to do. Now he can charge Haman for something totally irrelevant to his decree. And that's what he's trying to do. Get rid of the problem without implicating himself in this problem. As you'll find in chapter 8, the king does not lift a finger. He rescues Esther. He does not lift a finger to help the Jews. They have to petition him again. And he just says, well, you do what you want. You know, I've given you the ten sons of Haman, you make a decree. But it's almost like he didn't want to have to deal with it. I don't even want to think about this because it's too hard for him to face his pride. And so this was a very, very uh, convenient uh, uh, issue when he sees the king. Now, I doubt very much that the king really thought that uh, Haman was raping or assaulting his wife, but appearances are appearances, and it's very convenient for the king to take the the pressure off of himself and now to put it on to Haman for an entirely different reason. So second half of verse 8, the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. They're very in tune with what the king wants. They don't have to receive a command from him instantly. They arrest him. They put this covering over his face. Now, just in case the king might show some clemency and might forgive him, God's providence makes sure that Harbona spills the beans about the gallows. And any possibility of clemency is completely removed once the king finds out that Haman had it in for Mordecai, the king's friend, the guy who has just saved the king's life. I mean, this completely takes out any possibility that he is going to be able to be saved. And these words in verse 9, let's just go ahead and read them. Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look! The gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. Now think about the providence that's involved, even in Harbona knowing about this information, let alone being able to spill the beans to the king. If the gallows had been erected this morning instead of having been erected last night, Harbona probably would not have found out about it because he's on duty now. When it, because it was erected last night, he was able, when he's off duty, to, to see what was going on and to inquire about it. Secondly, uh, we know that um, the friends, the counselors, and the wife 
of Haman had not wanted him to just kill him, you know, with stoning or hang him on a tree. They wanted him to make a spectacle out of this. So they say, do it 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet high. And so this is something that's going to be noticed by everybody. So when Harbona's on his way back to work, he sees this gallows and he's curious. And so the curiosity of him has to be there as well. He inquires, he finds out all of the details about this. And then finally, because it's so close to the palace, it's so high, all Harbona has to do is point out the window and say, look, and they can see the gallows that he has built. Can you see how God has to control everything in order to control anything? I mean, God's providence is truly marvelous. Now, it wouldn't serve God's purposes for the king to remain angry because this king has to be in a mood to be able to talk with Esther in the next chapter. He has to be able to be in a mood to promote Mordecai. And there's some other things he has to do there. And so God has to get his anger cooled very quickly. And that's doing something with Darius. If you remember at the beginning uh, chapter into chapter 2, the king was so upset over this Vashti issue we're not told how many, if it's months or how long, but it, it's obvious it's a period of time that it takes before he finally has his anger settled. And yet here, God very quickly allows this uh, hanging to settle his, his anger. So, let's see. Verse 10, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. <clears throat> and you see how even emotions have to be factored into God's providence. Now, I've given a quote from Charles Spurgeon there in your outline that I thought was good. He said, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. Amen? I mean, th this is such a cool doctrine, and I would urge you not just to believe in the doctrine of God's predestination, His sovereignty, His providence over all the cre creatures and the things of this earth, but I would encourage you to promote it. If you've got Christian friends, share with them this exciting things. It's in their be best interest that they're not hanging on to that trestle bridge, you know, when there's only two feet, they can be trusting God's providence and relaxing. But I want to end by giving some lessons on prudence. This is our side of the question. Prudence is not in opposition to sovereignty. It's precisely because we trust God to rule all over all of life that we do things His way rather than trying to manipulate life. And the doctrine of human uh, of providence is not the doctrine that God does things uh, apart from free human agency, that's fatalism. Uh, that's a totally different uh, uh, thing. It is the doctrine that God controls all of life and he even is so powerful that he can work through human means, through human free agency. That's the true doctrine of providence. And so even though God's fingerprints are all over this book, he works through humans like Mordecai and Esther and their initiative that uh, they take. Uh, Calvinists are very activist. Uh, and so one of the things you'll find in history is that um, 
uh, Calvinists down through history, for example, in battles, the Calvinistic armies, they were the most fierce armies and the fearless, most fearless armies. They worked the hardest uh, on the, the things that uh, they did. Their trust that God was taking care of them made them not worry about those types of things. They focused on their responsibilities. <clears throat> but when you're worrying about chance events, messing your plans up, it's pretty hard to focus on your plans because you're distracted with all kinds of what ifs that are going on around you. Uh, when you're convinced all things work together for your good, it's very easy to focus on being responsible. And so it's not at all any surprise to us that it was Calvinistic culture that produced the Protestant work ethic. It was Calvinistic culture that produced science and produced uh, free market capitalism and uh, risk management and all kinds of other things that uh, brought prosperity to the West. The most intensive periods of missions were started by Calvinists. The most pervasive influence in sparking the revolu uh, Industrial Revolution uh, were Calvinistic. During his days as guest lecturer at Calvin Seminary, R.B. Kuyper once used this illustration to try to show this relationship of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He said, I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling only to one and not to the other, I go down. So it appears like it's two ropes, but they're connected over a pulley over the top. Now, there's problems with our, that analogy because I think we recognize God's sovereignty is what enables us to be responsible, right? And so even the human responsibility rope is God's sovereignty. There isn't anything that does not include his providence. But there is an element of truth in that illustration because if we are pulling on the rope of human responsibility and denying divine sovereignty, what we're going to find when we're logically consistent is there is going to be a denial of the possibility of any human responsibility. On the other hand, if you pull on the rope of divine sovereignty and you ignore human responsibility, God's not going to bless you. In fact, God is going to say, that's not divine sovereignty. That's not providence. That's fatalism. That's a pagan concept. I work through human means. And so we have to have both sides of the rope. Divine sovereignty works through human agency. And throughout this book on God's providence, you see that God is controlling every detail, but his people must be very diligent as well. For example... Since Scripture says that uh, it's only through prayer that God uh, works his purposes in his people's lives, and you have not because you ask not, Esther prays. Mordecai prays. They ask the other people to join them in prayer. Uh, because kings aren't ordinarily, you know, sometimes God will give a dream or a vision to a king to change his mind, but because Kings aren't ordinarily changed in their course just by your sitting back and say, okay, God, please change the king's mind. Esther has to go talk to the king. She has to take initiative. Okay, because God makes use of governments and they are his ministers of justice, we need to use governments in, in, in the things that they are authorized to do. And the point is, we need to apply this to our lives. If you're looking for a job, look for a job. Okay, don't just wait for God to plop the job in your lap. It is a denial of God's providence to fail to go out and look with expectation. Why do you need expectation? Because God's on your behalf. He's going to supply. As, as you're looking, you can say, okay, Lord, I'm looking, and I'm looking with anticipation for what you're going to provide. But it's also a denial of God's providence to fail to go out and look. It's not just the expectation, it's the, it's the looking as well. 
your children won't automatically turn out right if you just pray for them, right? You've got to work hard as a parent. And that's why the scripture in James says, faith without action is a dead faith. You've got to hold on to both sides of the rope. And the point is, it is a slander against Calvinism to say Calvinism leads to passivity. It never has. It always leads to an incredibly active action-oriented people. You do not understand providence if you say that God's divine sovereignty means I sit back and do nothing. Okay? Can you see that? Does that make sense? Okay, a second lesson is that if God controls all of life by his providence, we might as well give, give up on trying to manipulate life. You're not going to change anything no matter how hard you strive. You might as well give up on changing uh, a providence. That's not the kind of action he's talking about. What we have here is Esther is seeking to align herself with God's providence and take the best actions she can within the deck that God has dealt to her. Does that make sense? That's different than trying to manipulate providence. Now, we can violate this in different ways. One way is by trying to invent the future with our planning. And I think a lot of church plans that are out there are just attempts to invent the future. Now, it is, it is very legitimate to plan for the future in terms of what our responsibilities are. I'm going to knock on so many doors. I'm going to witness to so many people. But when we say, uh, by the end of this year, we're going to have 30 conversions, that's trying to invent the future. That's not in our power to do. That's God's providence, okay? And so what we need to do is we need to be asking the Lord, Lord, you have sovereignly prepared our church or you've prepared our family in a given way. You've given me a set of skills. You've given me all of these different things. I'm trying to discern, Lord, based on what you are doing in your providence, how do I align myself with your purposes so that I can be going in the direction that you have prepared me for rather than fighting against what you're doing? Does that make sense? It's really freeing once you can... Once you can lay hold of that. Now, a related error is to seek to manipulate life, and then when we find we can't, to get frustrated and deny that all things are working together for our good, Romans 8, 28. And when I think of a person who was constantly trying to, to manipulate providence, it was Jacob, the schemer. Jacob, the schemer. <clears throat> now, it's true, his... His father-in-law was terribly manipulative in his own life, cheating him out of his wages over and over again. But you look at, you look at how Jacob responded, and it, it's really weird. <clears throat> God has already promised Jacob, look, I will flourish you. I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to take care of you. But Jacob has a hard time trusting God, and so he's always trying to do things to make sure that he outwits his father-in-law, uh, father Laban. Laban, for example, at one point says, okay, last time you got all the black sheep. Now, now we're going to change your wages. All of the speckled and spotted sheep you're going to get because he doesn't have very many in his flocks. And so Jacob comes along and he makes spots and speckles on these boards and he holds it up in front of the sheep and the goats while they're mating, thinking that if they look at all these spots and speckles, that they're going to get those spotted and speckled sheep. He doesn't know anything about genetics and God's the one who gives all kinds of spotted and speckled sheep but he's working his tail off thinking he's manipulating providence and he's not doing a thing and that's the way we are many times uh, we think that we're controlling life and God says you don't control it all you need to line yourself up with me you need to relax a little bit and you know even later on during the famine uh, uh, that J uh, J uh, J uh, Jacob was experiencing, God is beautifully and he is wonderfully providing for Jacob. 
He's preparing Jacob. He's working all things together for good in Jacob's life, according to Romans 8.28. But Jacob can't see it. Here's, he gives the exact opposite in his complaint. Genesis 42, verse 36, Jacob complains, all these things are against me. It's the opposite of Romans 8.28. All of these things are against me. Now, we're looking at it from hindsight. Remember, Hebrew, you can't read forward. You've got to read it backwards. All we do, if we're in the midst of the providence, we've got to trust, Lord. It doesn't look like it's working together for my good, but I trust you. I know that it is. But we look back on those same things that Jacob said, everything's against me, and we say, Jacob, you're so blind. Every one of those things is perfectly working for your provision, for your protection, to take you to Goshen, to reunite you with your long-lost son, to preserve the lives of everybody. It's perfectly working together. But he's wrestling against it, constantly wrestling. And the point I am making from this is you need to be like Joseph. You need to learn to trust God in his providence. Take your responsibilities, yes, but to say, Lord, I just trust you. Whatever the outcome on this, I'm just excited to see what you're going to bring out of it rather than constantly being frustrated against. In fact, that's the only alternatives. When you try to manipulate life, you're going to end up being frustrated with life like Jacob was. When you align yourself with life like Joseph did, you'll learn to enjoy life no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. So what about you? Does life frustrate you? Does it get you down? You're trying to constantly manipulate life or when you can't do that, getting upset with life. I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you read a little essay by the Puritan Thomas Boston. It's called The Crook in the Lot. The Crook in the Lot. He was a Puritan writer who had experienced a lot of opposition and trials himself. But he takes off from a verse in Ecclesiastes 7.13 which says, Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? He is saying there is no time that any man has ever been able to change God's providence. Impossible. You can align yourself with providence. You can gain great comfort from providence. You can gain great joy, but you can't change it. If you want a current English version of that, Curtis Crenshaw translated it into uh, modern English, and he gave the title, Profiting from Your Afflictions. It really is a marvelous treatise, and I encourage you to, uh, to read up on that. Profiting from God's Afflictions. Now, when we've learned the lesson of trusting God to control all things rather than emotionally feeling like we've got to manipulate life, then we're going to be able to focus on doing our responsibilities better. And this is point C. Too many people take God's job upon their shoulders and they end up not doing their own jobs well. Uh, for example, only God can change your spouse's heart. Only God can change your friend's heart or your enemy's heart. And yet how many of us are trying to change other people's heart, which is God business, and we end up being frustrated to death over this? Let God do the providence, and uh, God calls us to serve within the comfort of knowing he's going to work all things together for good. We can serve that individual. We can bring rebuke occasionally, but do what God said is our responsibility to do and leave the results to him. Don't worry about whether you're successful in that endeavor or not. Focus on what you have. Now, I think we've got a fantastic example in Esther here, her prudence in her use of speech. She could just pray and say, well, we'll just leave it up to God and see how God does it. But no, she has prudence. She does the things that she is doing. She tries to do it to the best of her ability. In fact, I want to use this just as a separate application 
uh, that you can put in there. How can we best disagree with authorities? How can we best appeal to a parent or to, uh, you know, a, a magistrate or something like that that we disagree with but do it in a biblical way? And I think this is, uh, she's just a marvelous example here. First thing that Esther does is that she lets the king know that whatever his decision, she is willing to submit to it. Uh, she's going to be appealing. It's a bad decision. And she's going to be saying it's a bad decision, but she does not in any way want to show her rebellion. She says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, she's looking to, to be pleasing in his sight the way she brings it up. And you know, if children would approach parents this way when they disagree with a parental decision, I bet there would be many more parents who would be quite willing to admit their error. You know, if wives would approach husbands and say, Honey, um, I'm willing to submit to whatever decision you make on this, but you mind if I share with you five reasons why I think this would not be in your best financial interests? She would be much more likely to be listened to than if she said, You idiot, do you understand the repercussions of this foolish decision? I mean, that's immediately going to get his back up, right? And uh, it's, not just a, it's not just a situation of, of authority. In any of our interactions with each other, common courtesy is going to get us a whole lot further than if, we, we're, if we're rough with our words, we're accusatory with our words. Next, she gives a synopsis of the problem. Let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. Now, she's explaining the repercussions of his decisions, something the king wasn't aware of. I don't think he knew that he was, he had been, he was hurting her with his decisions. And how many times you husbands ever do something, you not, have not the foggiest notion how it's hurt your wife? Uh, I have. And, and, you know, they can say, honey, did you realize this hurt me? You know, just get to the nub of the issue and bring it up. And so she's using prudence. She's not doing it in an accusatory way, but... She's getting right to the nub of the issue as well. So she doesn't beat around the bush, but she doesn't intimidate. Next, she couches her terms in a way that is not a frontal attack. Now, it's very hard for him to avoid the conclusion he's the one that's caused all this trouble for her, right? But she didn't bring it up in so many, in so many words. She says, for we have been sold, my people and I. Now, who had sold her and her people to Haman? It was the king, right? But she puts it in passive language here uh, rather than an accusatory language. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, here's what the NIV application commentary says. By using the passive voice, she delays mentioning Haman's name or the fact that it was the king himself who sold the Jewish people for 10,000 talents of silver. This oblique tactic is not unlike that used by Nathan the prophet when confronting David with his sin in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan circumvented David's defense mechanism. You know, we usually hit the defense mechanism right up smack, right in the face, right? But circumvented David's defense mechanism by first arousing David's indignation and his resolve to see justice done before revealing that David himself was the evil man. The same tactic works for Esther. So she lets him draw the conclusion. But here's the next point. Esther does not play the Holy Spirit in his life. She even allows him off the hook to some degree by 
implying that he may have been deceived on this whole project, and I'm convinced he was deceived on this because we saw in the previous chapter he doesn't have the foggiest notion that any decree he has made has jeopardized the life of Mordecai the Jew. He, he doesn't have any idea. I think he was uh, deceived. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 4 that's picked up by a couple of scholars but would be probably missed in the, in the English. Both Sandra Beth Berg and uh, a course syllabus that I got from the Far Eastern uh, Bible College point out that the Hebrew word that is used for destroyed in chapter, in chapter 3, the Hebrew word that is used there is a homonym for sold. A homonym is a word that sounds exactly uh, the same, two words that sound exactly the same. So Hebrew is read from right to left, and so this word here is pronounced avad, and this word here is pronounced avad. Okay, pronounced exactly the same way, but and I, don't, I didn't put the vowel points underneath. I didn't want to have too many things up there. The vowels underneath are exactly the same, but this letter here is quite different than this letter here. Do you see that? So even though they sound the same, they're quite different words, avad and avad. Okay, now here's what Sandra Berg's um, uh, argument is, and I think it's a very convincing argument that Haman had deceived the king into thinking he was only selling this people into, into slavery. It can be deduced from six facts from the text. First, the two words we've already mentioned sound identical. Second, Haman offered to pay 10,000 talents of silver for the Jews. That implies he's buying them, right? Third, we already know from chapter 6 that the king does not know the wording of the decree. Uh, that Haman sent out forth, Esther quotes the exact wording of the decree which is about the Jews' destruction, and contrasts it with what the king thought that he authorized, uh, the servitude of a certain people, if we had been sold for bondmen and women. Fifth, Berg argues, quote, if only the sale of Jews into slavery were at issue, Esther would have remained silent because such treatment appeared to be the king's own wishes. However, she cannot remain silent because destruction was not what the king wished for, and her loyalty to the king makes her reveal this to him. And then finally, uh, uh, she says that the any decree that, that he had made. Now, if her interpretation is right, and I think possibly even if her interpretation is wrong, I think what's going on in these verses is that Esther is assuming the best about the king. Esther is assuming the best about the king. And I think this is a, a good strategy to assume the best about the one who is disagreeing with you. If they're wrong, then it'll become apparent as the conversation goes on and you can deal with the fact that they are guilty. If, they are, if you're right in assuming that they are innocent, you've not needlessly, you've not needlessly upset that person. Okay? And I think we tend to do the opposite. When we get into disagreements, we tend to assume the worst about the other person rather than the best. In fact, I did it yesterday with one of my children. I had to repent of it and ask for forgiveness for that. It's so easy to fall into that, to immediately jump to the wrong conclusion. If we want to be effective, we have got to remove all of the obstacles to effectiveness in our communication. And one of the obstacles to communication, it's always going to be there if you're assuming the worst about the other individual. So, that's just an illustration that she is trying to use prudence 
not just say, okay, God's sovereign, there's nothing I can do about it, but she is trying to be the best communicator that she can in this situation. The fourth application is that a belief in providence is not at all inconsistent with dependence upon the actions of other people. Mordecai asks uh, for Esther's help. Esther asks for Mordecai's help. Both of them ask for the people's help. They ask for the king's help. And now here is Harbona, who is giving aid by offering his two bits. And then lastly, while it's appropriate to wait for providential openings like Harbona has been doing here, don't fail to take advantage of divine opportunities when they land in your lap. Too many times we end up realizing, oh, that was a perfect opportunity for witness or a perfect financial opportunity to get involved, but we realize it too late, <laughs> you know, when, it, when we can't take advantage of it any longer. And so I want to answer the question, how do we avoid missing these integrity checks God brings into our lives? And how do we avoid missing the opportunities that he places before us? Well, it gets right back to the first point. If God's providence over everything is uppermost in our mind and we exercise our responsibilities in light of that providence, we're going to have our eyes peeled constantly for the financial opportunities, job opportunities, opportunities to train our children, opportunities for witness or speaking God's law into society or whatever it may be. We're going to be in a habit of mind of looking for those things, realizing God's working every day. What is God's thing that he's bringing into my life today, I do not want to miss that. So the doctrine of providence is very practical, even enabling us to be responsible. Reformed people, I think of all people, need to be ready to jump on an opportunity, whatever that might be, as soon as it comes. So expect God to work and lay hold of his working. Lay hold of both ropes that are going up into that ceiling. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the lesson of Esther chapter 7. We bless you, Father, that you have been so faithful to your people, whether they have been anxious or whether they have been bold as a lion in the face of the enemy. Uh, we thank you that your providence was always secure. You remain steadfast even when we falter. You remain faithful even when we are unfaithful. You cannot deny yourself. And so, Father, we want to rest ourselves in your providence, your predestinating power your plan over all this, wor this world. And yet we want to, in the context of your control, to be exercising, and because of your control, be exercising our responsibilities to the best of our abilities. I pray that you would help us to do that. Do bless those people, Lord. Bless them with understanding. Bless them with faithful hearts. Work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.